Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Our guest today is a true legal tech expert. Dennis Kennedy, director of the Center for Law, Technology, and Innovation at Michigan State University College of Law. Dennis first saw the potential that technology had for advancing the legal industry when he started using computer tools in his estate tax practice. He went on to work in-house at MasterCard, where he focused on information technology and supported the company's mobile wallet, API, and labs business groups. For more than 20 years, Dennis has been an advisor and consultant on innovation, legal technology, and productization. Since 2015, he's been a law professor, helping his students explore non-traditional career paths in legal tech. Additionally, Dennis has written hundreds of articles on topics such as legal technology, innovation, and law practice management, as well as co-authored four books. He's also a frequent speaker and has co-hosted the Kennedy Mile Report podcast with attorney Tom Mile for over a decade. Today, Dennis talks to us about his journey from an estate and tax practice to legal tech, being one of the first attorneys with a professional website, how he creates a sense of value around technology in law school, and his thoughts on recent advancements in artificial intelligence. Thanks go to Dennis for all his contributions over the years and for his time in talking to us today. Thanks for listening. I'm joined today by Dennis Kennedy, blogger, podcast host, adjunct professor at Michigan State and the University of Michigan, strategic advisor, tech guru. I could go on, Dennis. I don't know how uh, how you find the time to do all these things, but thanks for joining the podcast. Happy to be here. I, I sometimes, uh, I, after a while, I realized that my actual superpower had to be time management. That must be what I'm really good at because of all the things I've been able to do. It must be. I got I got exhausted just looking at your list of activities and books <laughs> and speeches at work. I had to take a nap. Yeah, well, naps are a good thing, though, so I'm glad I could help with that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Let's talk a little bit about your background. You came out of law school and your first, if I've got this right, your first area of practice in private practice was as an estate and tax attorney. I don't think of estate and tax as being a hotbed for legal tech innovators, but it must have sparked something in your... Yeah, in those days, it actually, in the estate planning area, it really was a hotbed of technology. And so a lot of things like document automation, if you're doing estate taxes and other things, we were you know using spreadsheets, financial tools, those sorts of things early on. And if you go back and you look at some of the earliest people who I followed who were writing about legal tech, they were, were, were in the estate planning area. So I had come out of Georgetown Law School where as a 2L, I took one of the first classes in computers in the law in uh, 1982. And I decided I wanted to be a computer lawyer. But basically, your options to do computer law in those days were to go to work for IBM which I didn't do. So I moved to St. Louis and got the chance to do the estate planning. And one of the reasons they brought me in was to try some document automation for our documents. And I, I still don't understand exactly how this was working, but it was a legitimate five hours of work to create first drafts of complex estate planning documents. And so I worked on... Uh, so this would have been like 1990-ish, doing a document automation program to do our wills and trusts and powers of attorney. And when I got it to work, I realized I took that five 
hours of legitimate time that I could track down to about five minutes. And I said, this is amazing in its way, but I've kind of created a bit of a problem for myself on getting my billable hours for the year, right? <laughs> so, but that was, that was sort of what I did. Uh, so we did that. We relied on the, um, that for drafting for a long time. But most of the work I was doing in the tax side was on estate tax returns, tax planning. There was a lot of stuff in like charitable planning that's based on actuarial factors. We do computer programming. I had a, a law partner who created this program that actually did those calculations that he sold as a separate product. Um, so one of my favorite examples of lawyers using technology to create products, and he was doing that in the early 90s. So there was a lot happening there in that space, and it is kind of because of, I think, in the bigger estates, the type of financial assets that people owned and how you needed to track and project those. You then became an IP and information technology lawyer a few years later before starting your own firm and then moving to MasterCard. Is that is that sort of what triggered the lifelong passion for legal technology and the way it can improve the profession? Yeah, I mean, sort of. So what I, I there's a couple things. So I always say that in 1995, I uh, was thinking about the Internet and said, oh, my God, the Internet is going to be the most important thing that happens in my lifetime. You know, like the invention of the printing press. And uh, 1995, I missed the whole thing. I totally missed the whole thing. So I decided I had to create a Web page and kind of be like a laggard on it. Well, it turns out, and you may know this, there's probably like about 20 lawyers in law firms who had web pages in 1995. So I'm not sure there were 20. <laughs> I don't know. We, I feel like we should have some reunions sometime. But, but it's, uh, so that led me one direction. And then I got a chance to, uh, I had a friend who was an editor at Lawyers Weekly USA who needed somebody to write about legal tech. Um, and so that launched my writing career. And then from the website and other things I was doing and doing some of the technology work at my firm, I just said, I think it's time to kind of pivot, as they say these days, into into something that felt like it fit me better. And then I also saw then in estate planning, the accountants, the financial planners, the trust companies were taking away the most interesting and creative work from the lawyers. And I saw that as a trend that would continue. And they were trying to limit what was considered a practice of law. So I decided to align, try to realign what I was doing with what I was most interested in. And so those two strands really developed there of, what I say, technology law and legal technology. I don't not necessarily say I'm an evangelist, but kind of, uh, you know, fill into the writer, speaker, somewhat of a futurist on legal tech. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. Your career and my career sort of overlap in chronological order. And so a lot of what you're talking about, I remember trying to get document automation techniques driven into, adopted by lawyers back in the 90s and how difficult that was. What did you learn about the adoption challenges for technology in the legal profession over your career? Well, a couple of things. I think that with my current focus on innovation and some of the things I teach, I now understand it as the need to adjust or change the business model at the same time that you're adopting technology. And I think that was not something people thought a lot about. It was just like technology is cool or it's new or we it's something we need to do. And, you know, like if you, uh, you know, so the difficulty in legal tech has been this makes you more efficient. You say, great, but I'm paid on how many hours I bill. 
right? And so if I do something in less time, then a lot of people say that means I can't make as much money, you know, I, I can't keep my job, those sorts of things, instead of saying, oh, wait, this uh, now I really love this term. Technology will allow me to practice at the top of my license. So I say, Technology will take away all this stuff I really don't enjoy doing anyway and will, you know, open me up to do the most creative things and things I like and not drain my energy in the in the same way as as other things. And but I think it does involve the, the business model thing to say, okay, so if we're doing it this way, how does that impact on billable hours? Can we do flat rates? Can we do other creative arrangements? Or my, my current interest is can we take what we know? and use technology to turn it into a product type of thing and then to generate revenue from the product, uh, as they say, while we're not working. That is the dream, isn't it? That's how that's, <laughs> that's how people make a lot of money. What interests you to go into teaching? You've been running the MSU uh, program for a number of years. You teach at the University of Michigan. What triggered that interest? You know, it's um, that's another thing where I always had people telling me, like, you should be a teacher. Dennis, you should be a teacher. You're really good at that. You you like, and they would say, the reason you like speaking so much is because you're a teacher at heart and you enjoy teaching people. And I go, yeah, not really. I, I like speaking because I, I like performing. And it's, that's different than, than teaching. I've been lucky to have you know, law partners and other people who are doing some teaching, and they just invited me to help co-teach their classes. So I got the chance to teach the classes at Washington University when I was in St. Louis. And then when I retired from MasterCard, uh, we moved up to Ann Arbor. And then those of you, uh, people familiar with Michigan will understand this sort of odd situation I'm in mean, when I moved to Ann Arbor and then got the opportunity to uh, do some teaching as an adjunct at MSU. And then that grew into becoming the director of the Center for Law, Technology, and Innovation at MSU. And people say, why did you move to Ann Arbor to work at Michigan State? I go, it's kind of kind of happened in the reverse order. And it has a lot to do with, I, I think somebody you know, Ken Grady, who was, who was teaching at MSU, and he had some health issues. And he reached out to me to see if I would take his classes. And it just turned into a great arrangement. And then, and then the students seem to like me, and, and it gives me a place to try some creative new things. It's sort of like I get to speak and create new things and stuff like that. And I get energy from from the students, and, and I, I love their perspective. And I especially like, um, and I know this is like not a normal law professor thing, but I love helping them get cool jobs. That's not a normal law professor. <laughs> At SciFarth, we've been privileged to have some of your uh, students who've gone through the center, joined the firm, many have gone on to other things, and the, you produce some really talented people. Tell our listeners a little bit about, for those that may not be familiar with the center's work, what is it and, and what's the goal of it? Well, it's been around for about 10 years. Uh, start with Dan Katz and Renee Kanaki and when. We had Dan Lennon and then Carla Reyes, and it went through a couple iterations. So some people may know it was reInvent Law and, and then Legal R&D. And now it's kind of taken the form of the Center for Law, Technology, and Innovation. And it started out with this idea of, like, what's the new practice of law going to look like? And there was a big interest in data analytics with Dan Katz and then with Dan Lena, really a sort of the Seifarth approach, right? I mean, it's like it's interested in Toyota method. Uh, you know, process improvement, those sorts of things. And so, and with Carla uh, Reyes, uh, she had a really uh, strong interest in, in blockchain. 
And she's really created a great space for herself uh, in blockchain law. And she's now down at MSU. And so I want to keep some of those things that fit me. And then what we do is we have a set of core classes. We do events. We do programming of all kinds. And I'm working toward a sort of four-part focus. I wanted to get it to three, but I just couldn't do it. So it would be emerging technology in the law, be law practice technology. Then an area I'm really interested in being at Michigan State and in, in the Midwest is supply chain law in the broadest context. And then my big goal is to create something I'm currently calling the new legal careers platform, which you will probably recognize would be a way to kind of help those students who are going into legal operations, legal process improvement, legal technology, sort of non-traditional practice areas and build on what the earlier MSU alumni have created and in this growing new field and give them, you know, provide them with some opportunities along those lines so they can go to like the sci-fi's of the world and, and be prepared to help those firms in these sort of new ways of delivering value to clients. You know, it's it's interesting that that latter point is really fascinating to me. And perhaps it's because we have been the beneficiary of some of the work the center has done, even in its prior incarnations. There are many more paths now for people coming out of law schools than there were certainly when I was coming out of law school many decades ago. I'm not quite sure how to ask this question, but have you found resistance at MSU or a a view that those are lesser jobs or lesser career paths? How do you create a sense of value to law firms? Because these are incredibly interesting career paths, incredibly valuable career paths. Are they looked down on by the other students or by the professors? Do you see what I'm trying to ask? So it's, it's, a, it's a clumsy way of asking. No, I, I know exactly what you mean. And some of it's been skewed a little bit for, for me because of, of the pandemic, right? So not being around, you know, on you know, having a couple of years of, of teaching online and stuff like that. So this year I'm meeting more more of the faculty, but I think they're, they see the impact of technology, something they clearly see and they understand. I think there is that disconnect that you and many others have talked about that the employers feel that the current law graduates are not practice ready, whatever that means. And so I think there is this challenge between this sort of doctrinal approach. And, you know, there was for a while that law schools were really emphasizing that their professors have PhDs as well as JDs. And that sort of, I think, really abstracted what was being taught from what people were using in employment. I would say less, the interesting phenomenon I see is less from the professors, but it's the sort of what the students have internalized. And so I've had a number of students who've taken what what I would say in the general scheme of thing are sort of like mid-level types of jobs that are not really what their strongest interests are. And they've turned down opportunities to do legal tech, process improvement, and project management, those kinds of things that would clearly pay them in the six figures coming out and have a lot of upward career paths. And the, as you know, in corporate legal operations, you know, I was at MasterCard, but to go into a legal operations group at a Fortune 500 company, your career opportunities are immense, right? Just in Absolutely. terms of education, diversity, you know, what projects you work on, the things you learn. But what I found was students will say to me when they have those opportunities or making those decisions, they say, I'm really concerned that if I take this job and I'm going to law school and I don't become a lawyer, 
my family and friends aren't going to think well of me or they're going to say bad things to me. And that becomes the driver for them. So it's this weird sense of shame is not the exactly the right word, but there is that sense of there of you know some sort of guilt or there's a psychological thing. And then also, I think they get advice from professors and others that you need to go out and practice for five years and then go into these areas like tech and stuff. Where I would say no, like the legal tech companies, like all you know, corporate, all these, they want people now and. They're actually open to hiring right out of, of law school. And so some of my students and some of my RAs have, have had already gone into their first job in places that you wouldn't actually expect to see, you know, somebody who is a recent graduate. I, mean, I had two recent graduates go right into a corporate legal department and data privacy, you know, so that I think is one thing. But yeah, I think there is that there's a law school, you know, as a result of the pandemic and other things is kind of evaluating how they teach and what they teach. There is a sense that there is a sort of traditional approach and people, there are people doubling down on that. And some other people saying, what is it that these students need coming out of law school to get the work they want? And what is the role of, of law school in that? And I think that's a question across the board as People decide what they do with their with their law schools and what approach to education they want to to take. Yeah, it's an interesting moment in uh, law school education in that respect, isn't it? Because we talk about we talked a little off air about ChatGPT and the role it's playing in just the courses you're teaching, and of course that's created a lot of debate about the role of technology in writing answers to exams and. How do you see this emergence of these technologies having an impact on legal education? Well, I, I think that it's the pace that these technologies are being introduced is amazing. Like, so I saw this thing like in the first five weeks of Chat GPT, it went over a million users, and there's basically been, you know, not Netflix, not Facebook, not anything has had that initial adoption curve. And you have all these people doing these experiments. And even at this point, you're saying, like, with this, with, uh, you know, some of the other new technologies, the idea is the idea that we can stop them, even plausible, or can we even slow them down? And as, as we look at the world as being global, and not just the US and not just state by state, you say, look, Things are happening all over the place. And if we kind of sit around as lawyers and the, the people involved in law and policy and say, we're going to debate this stuff, like, as I tell in last year in one of my classes, we talked about NFTs and Web3 and cryptocurrency and the metaverse. And this year, when I told them that, they all laughed. They all kind of snickered, you know, because they're almost like passe. That's so 2022. <laughs> right. No, and, and you're saying, so those task forces trying to figure out the impact of the metaverse, you know, that were created last year, like, what are they, what are they doing now? Well, there's a lot ha still happening, but like the focus has changed a bit. And Chad GPT has kind of captured everybody's imagination, but it still feels like this. I mean, I think it's super cool. And I think it has these like really amazing limited use cases. But I think people, I think there's going to be a great disappointment because it's not, you know, it's not going to take the place of humans. But what it can do is pretty dang amazing, you know, and I think of things that, that I want to use it for. And you think of things like summaries and 
tagging, you know, intelligent tagging and other things like that. I love Dolly too, which generates images. I use that in my PowerPoint slides now and other things like that to get really, really cool illustrations. And I think that the Dolly too, I've used that as a, like a visual idea supplement. You know, like put these ideas together, you know, like, and, and see what, images it comes up with in the same way as if you're drawing or mind mapping or, or whatever, the visual element can actually kind of inform what it is you're doing. So I think those tools are going to be used in a lot of ways. And it's kind of like there is a coming in by default and how people are using them. And we have a certain set of concerns that we need to try to figure out what to do about. But in some cases, we're changing all the questions. Because I, I chat GPT, people were talking about, oh, we're concerned about plagiarization. And I'm like, I don't know whether chat GPT is actually plagiarizing anything. I mean, it's just like creating stuff on the fly from what it was trained on. Like, is it a plagiarization issue in education? Or is it a kind of equivalent of students paying someone to write a paper for them? It seems like it falls more into that category than plagiarization. Is it infringement or is it something else? And, and I think that to me, when I'm teaching, I realize more and more, although my practice, I, I, my focus is always super practical, is I feel that all of these technologies are really forcing us to these core questions. You know, like, what does this mean? Or in my AI class, I said, let's think about who regulates AI in this country. And it's really hard to figure out who is and who should and what it should look like. There's some fascinating governance issues, aren't there? Mm -hmm. Over AI that we have never had to ask before. And you're right, the pace is only going to continue. I think 4.0 is due to be released later this year. Yeah, I think it's like maybe even in March. I mean, it's like that fast. And that's like an order of magnitude, bigger set of documents that it was trained on. Yeah. So let's change topics a little bit. You've got a new addition to your book out, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, the home edition. Yeah, we sort of feel it's interesting you say that way because it came out in August, but it was published by the ABA. And the ABA has an approach where they don't put their books on uh, Amazon until it's been out for like eight or nine months. So I sort of feel like it's going to be re-released. And <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> so that people, that people can actually find it and buy it here. Either, yeah, but Tom Mile and I wrote this book in 2008 and people were going like, collaboration tools and technologies. We don't even understand what that means. Like, and why is that important? And then they looked at the book and they go like, oh, this might be the most important thing going with technology because we work together. And then we looked at pandemic times and said, we can kind of condense what we're doing and focus on like a completely new set of tools, a different set of focus. And, and a lot of, a lot of what we do in the book is to say, what are the principles and frameworks that you would use to make decisions about technology and where you need to look at things. And so that kind of got updated through the pandemic and work from home and kind of the new approaches that lawyers were forced to take in a lot of cases. And then what that opened up in some cases and what, you know, where there was pushback in other cases, you know, which we, we continue to see. I saw there was another big firm that said uh, associate bonuses are going to depend on the time they're physically in the office. And I'm like, come on, like what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's so interesting, right? Because you tend to view it as either as an A-B test, right? We either in the office the whole time, which magically solves the collaboration dilemma, but eliminates the flexibility opportunity, 
or we let everybody be virtual all the time, which allows you for the flexibility, but eliminates the collaboration tool. When in fact, the right path is somewhere in between understanding the benefits and risks of both. Because both you got to solve for both questions, the flexibility the generation of lawyers wants, and they need to be able to collaborate and connect with one another. Yeah, and I think there's also this, we have this sort of romantic fantasy about the old days of how people work together in offices, you know, and how we're collaborating. And if you're a partner in a firm, you know, especially a powerful partner, you think that like, it's totally easy to collaborate with people. I once worked with somebody at MasterCard who, you know, like, as you know, scheduling conference calls with people around the world is really difficult, like to find the time that works. And if you have somebody in Australia, basically somebody is going to be up in the middle of the night to be on like whatever time you have. And had somebody at a very high level who said, I don't see that as an issue at all. I just schedule these meetings at 9 a.m. New York time and everybody makes it. And I go, yeah, it's like a distortion factor, right? They're going to come to your meeting. So your perception of how easy it is changed. <laughs> and I, I think there's this notion of like, oh, the water cooler and, and this. And But you, what you... I think we've been forced to look at and say like, oh, well, what's happening is that you're going to the people who look like you, the people who think like you, the people who are closest by you. You don't you know, send, you know, give work to a whole range of people. It's hard for people who are introverts to wait outside your door and try to come in and, you know, like get you scheduled and all these things. And when you're, uh, you know, when we were all on Zoom, I was like, this is great because I can just set up a time, you know, with somebody or I can send them a text and say, like, do you have five minutes to talk about this? And and it was easy to arrange as opposed to like, because as a young associate, I remember like waiting outside a partner store for half an hour while uh, or working with their secretary to say, like, I think he's going to I think he's about to get off the phone. You can you know, near like, hang out by the door to go in. Oh, I remember those. I remember that. <laughs> And so I, I think we sometimes go like, oh, no, you're in the office and you have these these really productive hallway conversations. And you go like, no, they actually weren't productive. We were talking about football and whatever else, you know, and you go like, well, we need to factor in that component. But I think we've learned a lot from the online environment and also in the hybrid environment that I would like to see come back. Uh, you know, that we, we learn those lessons instead of going backwards. And when I see those things about, you know, being in the office, and I did this on Twitter last night, again, I said, you know, uh, so the associate bonuses are tied for this, but are they saying that to partners, go ahead and keep doing whatever you're doing, because we don't care about that. And it, and it, so it just starts to feel a lot like control, right? Gaining back control over your employees versus knowing, as I do from students, and myself, like flexibility is what we care about. And we want to be efficient. And we would like to talk to somebody at a time that works for both of us and those kind of things. And the collaboration tools actually make that a lot more possible. It's just different. And serendipity thing, we just have to think about like whether that's like how valuable that really is most of the time. Because I don't know, in my case, like how often, like the last few years I was in MasterCard, there was nobody I worked with who was in the same office I was in St. Louis. They were all around the world. And so like the serendipitous water cooler conversations I would have in the office didn't really exist. So we have romanticized that. I mean, particularly those of a certain generation, we have this belief that, you know, we would bump into the partner and have this magical conversation about the law or a particular case or particular client. And I'm sure that happened on occasion, but not very often. 
is the reality of it. Well, I kind of like, I remember, and I know this isn't allowed that much anymore by certain corporate clients because of the current rates and hourly stuff. But I learned a lot for the, when I was doing estate planning because the partner I work with always included me in client meetings. And so it's kind of interesting because if, if now, if you're doing the Zoom meetings with your clients, which we needed to do for a while, and, and, and especially with elderly clients, it's just a huge benefit to them not to say like you have to come to the office, you know, and they know how to do Zoom and stuff. You say to an associate, just sit in on the meeting over Zoom, and then you get that benefit of seeing like how somebody handles the meeting and that sort of thing. You don't have to be physically in the same place, which sometimes can be difficult, especially when you have regional offices. So I think it's and nobody's. I, I think it's really hard when you know lawyers. We all have this cult of business. It's hard to step back and look at things and rethink them. But I think there's some great opportunities that in this sort of hybrid approach not, that we now have, that we aren't taking advantage of in the way that we really could. And that, I think that comes out a lot in the book that we wrote. Yeah. Your partner in the book is also your co-host on a podcast that you've been running since 2006. I didn't even know there were podcasts in 2006. <laughs> well, I think we did the podcast uh, and like when I first did my website and when I did my blog, it sort of felt like, oh my God, the podcasting thing has, has already come and gone and like we missed it. And so we need to do a podcast and here it is 17 years later and you see people are issuing press releases because they started a podcast, which in some cases goes one or two episodes, but, but it's really hard to sustain. I mean, as you know, it's really hard to sustain a podcast over a long period of time. And that's uh, probably what, what time and I've done, I mean, I think we have great content and stuff and we've done some cool things, but I think the fact that we've been able to sustain it on such a regular basis is, is really an accomplishment that both of us are really proud of. And we still talk to each other like as friends, so which is even better. <laughs> you have a great banter on, on the podcast, you know, that's clearly built up over the years. <laughs> So, yeah, people people sometimes say, and this is like true with the early bloggers too, they, they're like, so interesting that all you people were friends and then you all started blogging at the same time. And I go like, no, 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 we would never even met each other if not for blogging. It's like blogging made us become friends um, and we had to meet each other and then we all did these other creative projects together. But it is funny because there's sometimes some of the early, especially some of the early bloggers, even I will sometimes feel like, oh, it almost seems like, uh, you know, the Marty Schwimmer of the trademark blog was like my college roommate or something like that because of, you know, like the level of friendship that we have now. Right. I, th I think it's I think it's fascinating the number of things you were at the forefront of blogging and podcasting and legal tech. It's been a very interesting career that you've had. Yeah, I mean, I tried to align it. I mean, over time, and I actually use career coaches and stuff over time. So I was trying to align better what my interests were with what my work was. And sometimes I did a better job of that than others. And, you know, right now that I retired, I feel like I have it. I get them mixed pretty good right now. But then I found that because of the position at Michigan State, I have to say I'm unretired now. So I'm like setting up for like a, a second retirement that I want to try to match even. So the retirement, I'm trying to get that kind of really centered on what I'm doing. I've had the 
the luxury to do that. And then, like you said, I don't know whether it's time management. I don't know whether it's resilience. I don't know whether it's experimentation. I like to try new things. And, uh, you know, some of the things I've become good at and I realized I uncovered something about myself that, you know, I sometimes go back and say, like when I realized I had published a hundred plus articles, I said, you know what? I, I now realize that I'm not a lawyer who writes articles. I'm a writer who also practices law. And that I think is kind of what helped me as a blogger and other things like that is that kind of discovering that part of myself of saying like, oh, yeah, I can do this legal stuff. And what I was good at is drafting and these other things. But it was because at heart, I'm kind of a writer. Fair enough. Uh, I know we've run over our time, but if you've got uh, two more seconds, tell us about the Law Department Innovation Library, which I find fascinating. Yeah, so I decided that innovation was actually the umbrella for uh, what I was thinking about with technology. And that my uniqueness was the basically 12 years I spent at MasterCard in their law department. And I got to work toward the end with uh, MasterCard Labs, which is our R&D and innovation group. And so as I talked to people who were in-house about what they were looking at in terms of technology and innovation, I mean, you sort of had the legal operations efficiency piece, but there were other things that touched. And like when I did my first webpage, which was called quite classically the estate planning links page, I said, <laughs> you know what, I could just do the same thing again. Like people want information on this topic. And I, it's sort of like a unique interest of mine and I have a unique experience and expertise in it. And I can create a web page that's sort of like my first web page that says, oh, just go to this one place and there will be this curated, aggregated set of resources that I'll keep adding to with stuff that interests me or that people suggest. And it will have value and it especially have value for somebody who's starting, you know, been given this role for the first time and saying, like, I don't even know where to begin. And say like, oh, here's here's some basic stuff. Here's some legal specific stuff. Here's some things about you know innovation in general. And this will get me started. And then then I also tried to find some tools and you know uh, business model canvas and maps and other things that somebody you know who gets put in this role can actually use and build it over time. And then usually when I do these things, I just see like what audience will build. And in this case. Ultimately, I'm going to see if I can create like a, a membership group around it as the experiment to say like, oh, can we do something where we create, you know, not just resources, but a community that, uh, and I say it membership because it would be nice to have people pay for, but you know, a community where people can share ideas, ask questions and kind of have a place to go because it's a very, you know, it's a relatively small group. So that's that's the whole concept there. And then it then potentially some of the things I find there feed into the next version of my book on innovation in law. And so it all sort of I try to make things work together. Absolutely. Well, Dennis, uh, we've we've run over. I appreciate your time. Thank you for the conversation. It's been fascinating. You're doing some fascinating stuff. And one day you've got to write a book on time management because we could all learn from you. Thanks. It's been so great to talk to you. I mean, you've obviously pioneered so many things yourself. And, you know, Seifert, that's just a great example of really innovation in some cool ways. And I would say the last thing I wanted to say is, you know, work with students is I'm, I'm so I'm so impressed by them in so many ways. And, and I hope that we take the chance to kind of unleash them and let them show their potential for kind of changing the legal profession and uh, client service in good ways and that figure out more ways that we can push them down and go back to doing things the same old way. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I have the opportunity to 
sort of teach on occasion at, at law schools, you know, guest lecture and that kind of stuff. And I always come out excited by the students and they always ask the question, okay, they're going to come into an environment that they're going to face obstacles and barriers to change. How do they drive change from their position? Lower in the pecking order, as it were. I'm sure you must get that question. I know we're wrapping up, but I have to ask you, what advice do you give? Well, what I do, so the class I'm teaching in Michigan is called Legal Technology, Literacy, and Leadership with the idea I'm trying to teach people how to do that and how they might take on roles in a firm where they get involved in innovation and technology and use that as a path to leadership and under, you know, understand what they can do in that firm and whether it's the right firm. And then I, I'm always after them to, to volunteer and then to question whether the law firm approach is what they want, uh, you know, especially for diverse students because corporate legal departments want diverse lawyers and they're looking for them. And so I think there's uh, sometimes law students like say, I'm going to go to big firm path and I'm kind of going to get ground up. I mean, it still surprises me when I ask law students like, how many, what do you think the minimum hours that you have to work as a new associate are? And Somebody told me like, well, my firm said 2000 and it was like a, you know, like an AMLAT, AMLAT 10 firm. I go like, 2000 won't even let you keep the job, you know, like, <laughs> no. right. And, That's right. But, but I say like, you know, especially the diverse students and the people with varied backgrounds and especially in this global economy, I think the international students have some real opportunities to sort of, I just go like network, talk to people, these new career fields, the people are really super generous and they're willing to talk with people. And that's what I found with some of my students that they started talking with people and then, they, you know, really and truly had new kind of jobs created for them. And so I think it's, you know, not kind of saying like, don't get set in what you think is the path that you're supposed to take and kind of make some effort to see what else might be out there. And that, you know, some of the things that people think are limitations and they can be in large firms. I mean, like the legal professions and large firms records, you know, with people of color and women is nothing uh, to brag about, to put it mildly, but there are, you know, potentially some fantastic opportunities and you may, it may serve your career really well not to learn the hard way in what is not a good environment for you. And the sooner you can ask the right questions and get that figured out, that's going to help you over the long run. Uh, that's, that's great advice, Dennis. Uh, well, again, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, you're doing some really cool stuff. Great to see you out there with these young people. All right, cool. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.